You're listening to Let's Talk Creation. Well, welcome back to another episode of Let's Talk Creation with Todd and Paul. I am Todd Wood. And I'm Paul Garner. And yeah, before we get started today, uh, this is another odd episode. Um, yeah, this is going to be an interesting one. Um, before we get started, please like the video. You might not like it when it's over. <laughs> so, so if you like it now, um, don't, don't forget to subscribe if you're interested in, in what we're doing. Um, hit the notification bell if you want to know uh, the latest things if you're on YouTube. If you're on one of our many audio podcasting platforms, there are ways that you can leave reviews, and we would very much appreciate that. It helps to spread the word about what we're doing here and bringing you interesting, thought-provoking deep sort of deep dive content that you probably aren't going to hear pretty much anywhere else. And if you really appreciate that kind of work, we very much appreciate your support. And for those of you who have liked us and subscribed, we really appreciate you as well. So thanks for that. All right, Paul. Uh, I, I come to wow. this topic yeah. with um, fear and trembling. <laughs> yeah. Because I know... This is a passionate point for a lot of people, and um, yeah, we're probably going to step on some toes. So let me just say up front, before we even get started, my goal here is not to, to mock anybody or to make fun of anybody. I hope that every episode of Let's Talk Creation is is the same, that we're, that we are never out here to, to make fun of anybody. There's enough of that in the creation evolution world. And I hope that our podcast is always going to be something of a haven. That said, there are certain ideas that get bounced around in creationism that uh, we just, you know, Paul and I feel kind of strongly that it's time to put them to bed. Um, those days have passed. And there's so much, so much great stuff going on in creationism that we don't, we don't need to keep dragging up these old chestnuts. Um, and I know that there are lots of people out there who think this is very important and very exciting and, and, and they, they're strongly advocating for this. And, and I just, you know, I just, I don't think you're bad people. I don't think you're stupid. I don't think you're, I don't think any of those things. I just think we sincerely, honestly don't agree with each other about these particular issues. And what we're talking about here, because I haven't said anything about that yet, we're talking about the man tracks in the fossil record that go back, oh, so far into the fossil record. And you find these man tracks deep in the fossil record, and, um, and they're supposedly, you know, human footprints from the time of the dinosaurs. As, as you would say it in evolutionary terms. And of course, if this were true, it would be a real puzzle for the, the, the conventional evolutionary model. Yeah, if there were people alive walking around with the dinosaurs, that would be a real puzzle. But if you believe in biblical creation and you believe that dinosaurs were created along with the rest of the, the, the land animals on day six, then you do believe that people were alive at some time when the dinosaurs were alive before the flood. And so maybe it wouldn't be such a shock to you to find out that people, there were some traces left in the fossil record of people from before the flood, uh, you know, doing stuff with dinosaurs, maybe. I don't know. Um, so, you know, I can understand that this is, this is a humdinger of a kind of, of slam dunk kind of evidence that you might think this is it, right? This, this shows the evolution model predicts one clear thing and the creation model predicts totally the opposite. And it's a very, very stark contrast. It's not like there can be, you know ways to reinterpret evolution to fit this. Although knowing evolutionary biologists, they would, they would figure it out. Ah, all right. So the man tracks, yeah. where do we begin? Why don't we begin with 
at the very beginning. And Paul, well, I know you know a lot about this, a lot more than I do. So why don't you take us back, way back? <laughs> well, actually, I'd like to begin in a slightly different place. Tom, All right, because fine. <laughs> the reason <laughs> we'll come we'll come to the history because yeah, okay. it is fascinating. Yeah, but. The reason we kind of thought about doing this episode was because towards the end of last year, I was browsing through some recent issues of a science journal called Paleontology, which is published here in the UK by um, the Paleontological Association. And one of the papers uh, in a recent issue just caught my attention. And I have a copy of it here. Uh, and the title of this paper is a new solution to an old riddle. And as I um, read the abstract, I realized that the old riddle that was being referred to here in the title was the riddle of the dinosaur tracks in the bed of the Paluxy River at Glen Rose in Texas. And of course, that was the focus of uh, this huge controversy, and it was huge. It was a huge creation evolution controversy that ran over several decades yep. and uh, to some extent kind of still rumbles on today. Uh, and it was about the nature of the fossil tracks there in the Paluxy Riverbed. And I want to come back to this paper at the end because it, it's it kind of adds a new spin to, to the Paluxy story, and it just shows that the Paluxy story is not, is not finished yet. But, um, but that, reading that paper made me think, you know, we need to go back and we need to talk about the, the, the Paluxy story. So that then brings us to the history, uh, which, uh, you know, is fascinating. So, so let's, let's kind of go right back. Um, to the beginning, and it actually starts quite a long time ago, really before the modern creationist revival. So, I suppose we should set the scene first of all. So, so where does all of this take place? Uh, Glen Rose is uh, a small town in Somerville County in Texas. Correct. Uh, it's located along the Paluxy River, which is a fairly fast-flowing river that runs for about fifty miles through northeastern Texas. And the volume of flow of the river varies quite a bit. So you, you get hot summers where the river dries up and you get, um, you know, sort of in, in the winter when it's very wet, sometimes, you know, the, the, there's flooding. And this river runs through countryside that is underlain by uh, lower Cretaceous rocks that belong to the Glenrose Formation. Uh, now, this rock formation has a conventional age of about 105 million years. Uh, so it's kind of dinosaur age rock, if you like. Uh, from a creationist perspective, I think most of us would agree that these are probably flood rocks. And this formation is uh, composed of alternating layers of limestone and clay and sandstone. And at Glen Rose, the tracks that we're going to be talking about, the dinosaur tracks and these man tracks, are found in the lowermost layers in the Glenrose Formation. So the story begins back in uh, 1908, when there was a, a major river flood, uh, one of the most sort of devastating floods, I think, that hit Glenrose. And the flood uh, stripped away an overlying a layer of clay and exposed a limestone ledge on which there were fossil footprints, there were fossil tracks. And the local residents kind of, you know, noticed the, these, these tracks, these fossil tracks. Most of them were clearly dinosaur tracks of one kind or another, but there were also other tracks that the local residents described as resembling giant human tracks. So these were tracks that were about 18 inches long. They were about five inches or so wide. Uh, they were roughly sort of oval shaped. Uh, they were spaced about six to 10 feet apart. And so they, they were kind of described as giant man tracks. 
And over subsequent years, uh, there were other similar discoveries nearby, uh, other locations along the river. And in the period sort of leading up to the Great Depression, which I think peaked in the 1930s, uh, the region, this region of Texas, was suffering obviously economically. And some of the enterprising local residents realized that they could dig these fossil tracks out of the river and sell them to, to make money. And I understand, you know, a good dinosaur track would fetch maybe $50, which in those days I'm sure was a lot of money. Yeah. And uh, the man tracks as well, you know, you could, you could dig these, these sort of uh, man tracks out and sell those too. They made a bit less apparently. But dozens and dozens of these these tracks were basically excavated from the river uh, and sold so that local residents could feed their families. And it also seems that at this time, uh, some of the locals manufactured tracks. Right. So if they if they weren't able to excavate tracks, they would carve tracks. Limited, you know, in, limited in supply. Slabs. So limited supply, 50 yeah. bucks a track. Yeah, I can see why you would immediately <laughs> start thinking, hey, just make my own, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. So, so, yeah, this is nothing new, is it? Um, that There's still a trade in kind of fake fossils yeah. today. Yeah. Uh, so, so they kind of, you know, manufactured tracks, they'd, they'd carve tracks of various kinds. And again, they'd, they'd sell them to, to make some money. And uh, that brings us to kind of 1937, when uh, a paleontologist called Dr. Roland T. Bird, uh, who was employed by the American Museum of Natural History in New York, uh, he was uh, on his way back from a fairly unproductive, I think, collecting season. And he stopped at uh, a trading store in Gallup in New Mexico where his attention was caught by a couple of slabs in the uh, store window, which appeared to have these two sort of human-looking tracks on them. And uh, he went into the store, he spoke to the store owner, and the store owner said, uh, yeah, and I've got, I've got other tracks too. So he showed him some dinosaur tracks, and he said all of these tracks have come from the same location. They've come from the riverbed at Glenrose in Texas. So Roland Bird was intrigued by this. He was fairly sure at this point that the human tracks were fakes, that they were, they were carvings. But he was intrigued by the dinosaur tracks. So he decided he was going to make a trip uh, to go to Glenrose and check out the site for himself. And, and that's what he did. And while he was there, uh, he documented a number of dinosaur trackways of various types, um, including a set of sauropod prints. And uh, they were, at that time, I think they were setting up a, a kind of a sauropod display in the museum that he worked for. And I think they excavated this set of dinosaur prints, took them back to the museum and sort of made them part of the display. And... In May 1938, he wrote an article that was published in Natural History magazine in which he describes the dinosaur tracks and he also mentions the human-like tracks. And uh, some of them he seems to dismiss as obvious fakes, you know, he thinks they're carvings. Some that he'd actually seen at the location in situ in in the riverbed that you know locals had shown him these other uh, so-called man tracks he thinks they're dinosaur tracks he thinks they're some kind of elongate track that's been left by a dinosaur that's walking in very uh, very soft mud but anyway he publishes this article and at this point is when the creationists begin to get involved because Roland Bird's article is read by a number of creationists, particularly some who were associated with uh, an organization that was called the Society for the Study of Creation, the Deluge, and Related Sciences yes. that was based in Los Angeles. Yes. And uh, the society is so intrigued by this reference to these dinosaur and human tracks, you know, side by side there at, there at Paluxy, that they 
convened a committee to go and investigate, uh, led by a geologist called Clifford Burdick. So Burdick gets in contact uh, eventually with a, with a guy called Al Berry, uh, who is running a small sort of roadside museum, um, not at Glen Rose, but actually in, in Arizona, Long Route 66. And uh, he gets in touch with him because he finds out that this guy owns a number of um, fossil tracks that are said to have been sourced from the Glen Rose limestone. And so Burdick visits him, I think, and uh, Barry tells him, yeah, you know, we've got these dinosaur tracks and we've got the human tracks and we've even got some saber-toothed cat tracks and they've all come from, from Glen Rose. So Clifford Burdick um, takes an interest in, in the whole sort of Paluxy story and for several decades, maybe over the next sort of 40 years, you know, he makes sporadic visits to Glen Rose. Uh, he writes about the, the, the Paluxy site um, and, the, and the track evidence in creationist articles. And uh, these articles are eventually picked up by other creationists. Of course, most notably, they are picked up in 1961 in the Genesis Flood. So the creationist classic by uh, Henry Morris and John Whitcomb, uh, 1961, uh, they have a section in the book on misplaced fossils, and they very prominently feature tracks yeah. uh, that were, in fact, these photos are by Clifford Burdick. So these, these are tracks that Clifford Burdick was kind of popularizing. And you can see there's this sort of three-toed dinosaur track and then you've got this clearly sort of human-like track with the five toes and so on. So that's 1961. Yeah. And other creationists pick up on it too. Um, here in Britain, there was a very well-known creationist called A.E. Wilder-Smith, and I have a copy of um, this book that was published in 1974, Man's Origin, Man's Destiny. And there's a whole section of photos uh, in the middle of the book also with the Paluxy yeah, yeah. Um, tracks. So, you know, it gets, uh, gets widely popularised on both sides of the Atlantic. And, of course, we're now coming uh, towards the end of the 60s, beginning of the 70s, Henry Morris uh, famously founds the Institute for Creation Research in, uh, then in San Diego, in California. And from the outset, uh, ICR shows a great deal of interest in, uh, in the Paluxy sure. uh, track evidence. Sure. And they actually organise several research trips. Uh, they send scientists to, to have a look at the site, um, sometimes in collaboration with other, other creationist organisations. And another guy who sort of gets involved at this time is a man called Stanley Taylor. Uh, he was the director of a Christian production company called Films for Christ Association. And he became very interested in the Paluxy tracks and decided he was going to commission a documentary movie about the Paluxy evidence that was eventually released in 1973 uh, and called Footprints in Stone. Now I I confess I I have not seen Footprints in Stone. I don't know if you've you've seen I this movie. I haven't either. No. I, no, I I had a look to see if anybody had uploaded a copy of it online anywhere. Uh and I can't find it. So if anybody knows uh, yeah. uh you know a website where there's a copy of this movie, I'd be very interested to to see it because it was hugely influential yeah. at the time in promoting, you know, the man track um kind of claims. And it was widely distributed. It was widely viewed in churches around America. I know that showings of the movie were organised here in Britain as well. So, you know, it was, it was a very influential movie. I'd, lo I'd love to see a copy of it sometime. And so this was all sort of bringing the Paluxy site to, to, to the notice of the wider creationist community, the wider Christian community. and. In 1980, um, 
Dr. John Morris, who was uh, the son of uh, the ICR president, Dr. Henry Morris, published uh, this book, Tracking Those Incredible Dinosaurs and the People Who Knew Them, uh, which is a whole book all about the, the Paluxy um, story. And I remember, you know, reading this at the time, and like many other creationists, you know, it was very exciting. Sure. Um, and it's quite, it's quite an impressive book. Um, I don't know if you've read it, Todd, but uh, it, it covers the history of the fossil discoveries at, at Paluxy. Uh, it covers the geological setting at Glen Rose in some detail. It describes uh, all of the main track sites. Uh, it talks about the problem of carved tracks. It, it gives people's reactions to the finds, and it even tries to develop a kind of creationist model for sort of understanding how these tracks were formed in their geological context. context. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, so it's 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 an it's an impressive kind of book, a, a kind of case study. Um, and I remember you know reading that book. I've actually got another edition of it here with a slightly different cover. It obviously went through more than one one edition, and uh, that was very influential. So that's kind of the pro side yeah. of the Paluxy story. Um, yeah, let me let me let me throw in a take, little takes us through to the early eighties. Yeah, let me throw in a little wrinkle there because there is another yeah. side to this story that is generally not right. told. This is usually told. Right. In the creation evolution world, it's either by people who are still passionately excited about this evidence, or it's told as a as a terrible um, life lesson to learn that you don't trust what creationists say, right? Because yeah, the the, right. <laughs> the other shoe is about to drop in the in the history of this. Um, we've gotten up to the early '80s, and there's more to tell. But I wanted to I wanted to share yeah. with you something. Years ago, I was doing historical research, and I happened to be at the the archives at Andrews University in in Michigan. Um, and in the archives, they have the papers uh, and correspondence that was uh, uh, saved by George McCready Price. And you know that name, Paul. Um, Price mm -hmm. is a very very influential. Um, early 20th century creationist. He wrote a number of different um, books uh, and um, promoted the idea of flood geology when a lot of people in America were not thinking in terms of flood geology. He is in some circles regarded as sort of the father of modern creationism. I think that's a bit of an exaggeration, but he certainly did a huge amount to promote flood geology. Now, you already mentioned that the that the Deluge Society was very interested in the in the tracks. Price was part of the Deluge Society, and as I was going through his correspondence there and reading reading the letters that were going back and forth between him and other creationists, I found a letter written by um, a guy named Byron Nelson, uh, and you might remember right. Byron. Byron Nelson was a Lutheran, yeah. a very prominent Lutheran pastor who was yeah. also uh, had advanced training in genetics and wrote a book called After Its Kind, which was first published in 1927, which put forward a creationist view of, of the diversity of living things and how that fit into the Bible's description of things created after their kind. So here I am holding this letter signed by um, Byron Nelson, pretty exciting, to George McCready Price, and it's all about Paluxy. Really? Yeah, it was all about Paluxy. <laughs> right. And it was clear that Byron Nelson was pretty agitated and even used right. a little saucy, sassy language as he rebuked Price and said, this can't possibly be what you think it is, because there's no way... At the very end of the flood, when the dinosaur fossils are being deposited, there's no way there are people out walking around at that time. He said the people were all dead and buried by that point. There's no way there could possibly be people out there. He was basing it on an understanding of the flood. And he said, now nah, this can't be what it seems to be. This must be something else. And you guys need to stop running off stars in your eyes thinking you've, you know, got the final nail in the coffin for evolution. 
and start thinking more carefully and be more critical uh, in your view of Paluxy. Um, so I thought that letter was utterly fascinating to read. Yeah. Something I ought to go back and dig up and, and get a get a scan of that so we can uh, maybe get permission to post that somewhere because it. Yeah, it's yeah. usually the Paluxy story is almost always, if you're not a creationist, proposed as a story of how gullible and stupid we creationists are. But there's this other side where there were creationists, even at the very beginning, who thought, yeah, this this, yeah. this is too good to be true. And there were others. Yeah. You're, you're at, yeah. Exactly. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. I didn't know about that letter. Yeah. Um, I'd be fascinated to yeah. see it. Um, so clear, clearly there was, there was contention in the ranks yeah. in the deluge society then about, you know, the, the Paluxy evidence. Uh, no, that, that, that's fascinating, but you're, you're absolutely right because, you know, this is often forgotten that actually the first critics of the Paluxy Mantrax argument was other creationists. Were other creationists, that's right. Who, and, and, uh, the, the one that. The, the the name that I know of um, is someone called Bernie Newfeld. Um, I have a copy here of an issue of Origins. This is published by the Geoscience Research Institute. It's um, this is a very early edition. It's volume two, number two, nineteen seventy five. And in this uh, art in this issue, there is an article: Dinosaur Tracks and Giant Men by. Bernie Newfeld, that is in effect a critique of the the Paluxy evidence. Um, so what happened here is that um, quite early on, as the you know, the Paluxy story was sort of com coming to prominence, uh, a group of creationists who are associated with the Geoscience Research Institute, including um, Bernie Newfeld, Art Chadwick, who we've had as a guest on this podcast right. in uh, in the past, uh, and Leonard Brand, they were all kind of fresh, I think, out of graduate school at that time. Uh, they had heard the stories about these dinosaur and human tracks, and they wanted to go and investigate for themselves. So. So they went to, to Glen Rose and they visited various sites uh, along the river and they did a, a quite detailed field study of one of the, the best track sites. So they, they took measurements and they took photos and they made plaster casts of some of the more interesting tracks and they, they did all that kind of stuff. And just like um, Roland Bird um, back in the, the late 30s, uh, they found a variety of different types of dinosaur tracks, um, sauropod tracks. They're the big mm -hmm. long neck, long tailed yep, yep. Um, dinosaurs. Uh, they, uh, they found theropod tracks. So these are the kind of meat-eating, meat bipedal meat-eating dinosaurs. Uh, but their main focus was on uh, various series of these elongate tracks that had been interpreted by many in the past as man tracks. What they found as they began to very closely examine um, these elongate tracks was that they started to reveal dinosaur characteristics. So they started to notice that there were um, claw marks evident at the end of some of these tracks. Oh, claws. Uh, yeah. yeah, so uh, they seem to be poorly preserved dinosaur tracks where the soft mud had kind of backfilled the the toe marks. So you were you you were left with a sort of elongate um, track. There was another uh, set of tracks that were in a layer um, above the main dinosaur track bearing layer, and they were also claimed to be human tracks and. They also went to look closely at those and decided that they were basically just random erosional marks. The, the surface of these limestones is just full of sort of erosional marks. And um, some of these erosional marks at some point in the past had actually been painted with oil to sort of highlight the what, what people thought were these tracks. And Sometimes the kind of painting sort of accentuated features that made them look a bit more human-like than they really were. Um, 
but they decided those were the, were probably just erosion marks. And they also managed to um, locate some of the tracks which had been excavated um, from the Paluxy Riverbed. And they were now owned by various individuals or organisations. And they were able to make arrangements and get agreements to cross-section some of these tracks with a diamond rock saw. So you can kind of cut the track uh, in, in half uh, in order to test whether this is a genuine track. So if, if you've got a track that is genuine, um, what you would expect to see when you look at the track in cross-section is you would expect to see the layers in the sediment um, depressed mm -hmm. below the track. Yeah. Okay. Because you're squishing because the down into it. Yeah, yeah. Squishing the mud. Yeah. So as the foot goes down into this soft mud, it bends the the layers in the rock in the sediment as it was then um, below the track. So they kind of follow the contour of the track. Whereas if you've got a track which is a fake, if you've got a track that was carved, then obviously. Uh, the layers in the rock are just going to be truncated by the carving. <laughs> so those layers will just sort of end abruptly where the, where the track cuts into the, into the rock. So they were able to get some of these tracks and take cross sections to have a look at them. And what they found, uh, they, they had a look at one dinosaur track, which had apparently recently been removed from the river. And when they cross-sectioned it, they found that the layers bent down below the track, which is exactly what you expect. There you go. From a genuine yeah. track. But then they got access to uh, a number of uh, tracks, dinosaur and human-like tracks, which were currently... Um, at Columbia Union College, which I think was in Maryland. And those tracks had actually originally been in the possession of Al Berry. Now, you remember, I, I, I mentioned him. He was one of the contacts that Clifford Burdick had, and I think his collection had ended up at, this, at the college. And uh, they were able to cross-section these tracks, and they proved to be carvings. Uh, I think some of the dinosaur tracks, as well as the human tracks, turned out to be carvings, because the layers were just truncated by the by the tracks. The, the tracks just sort of cut through the layers. They also got some uh, specimens that were owned by Clifford Burdick himself, uh, including um, human-like and the cat-like tracks, the ones that were claimed to be saber-tooth cat tracks. And they cross-sectioned those, but the results there were inconclusive because when they cross-sectioned them, the limestone wasn't really layered. It was, it had more of a mottled appearance, so they they couldn't really tell one way or another, you know, whether whether these were carvings or not. So anyway, 1975, one of this uh, group from Loma Linda, Bernie Newfeld, writes up the results of this investigation in this journal, Origins. And he concludes, uh, to the dismay, I think, of many other creationists, that there was no good evidence at Paluxy for the existence of giant men or of the existence of humans and dinosaurs. So what happened uh, in the aftermath Did of anybody this listen? being published? Did anybody listen or respond? <laughs> well, I mean... This is before all yeah. those books are being written and movies being made. Did anybody pay yeah. any attention to these guys? Uh, unfortunately, no. <laughs> um, his article is largely ignored by everybody. Um, creationists largely ignore it because it obviously doesn't. It kind of doesn't agree with, you know, the the, the preconceived ideas that many creationists had. Um. Evolutionists at this time are just not interested in the tracks. There's, they're not right. showing any interest at all. Yeah. So, so everybody ignores Neufeld's article. And the kind of creationist, the popular creationist interest in the Paluxy tracks just continues pretty much unabated right through the 1970s and into the, the early 1980s. And I think... Um, I think we also kind of have to remember what the context was here. So this was a time 
when uh, there were these textbook controversies about, you know, what should be taught in American textbooks in public schools. And there were legal battles going on in the courts uh, about giving creationism equal time with evolution in the biology classroom. And, you know, all, all of this was kind of going on. And the Paluxy Mantracks kind of come to prominence and are being promoted right in the midst of all of this yep. swirling controversy. Legal stuff, yep. Yeah, legal stuff. And it, it's kind of in this context then that the first anti-creationist groups start getting organized because they want to combat these creationist efforts, you know, to, to get creationism into the science classroom. And so you get the the uh, groups like the National Center for Science Education and, you know, these sorts of lobby groups start springing up. And the anti-creationists at this point begin to realize that they can't ignore the Paluxy Mantrack evidence any longer. So they decide that they're going to mount a kind of investigation of their own. And so in the early 80s, what you see is that in the journal of the NCSE, this anti-creationist group, you begin to get a few articles that are sort of critical of the Paluxy evidence, including a very critical review of the, the Footprints in Stone movie. And this is um, followed up in... Uh, 1983, by a fairly detailed article that was published in the Journal of Geological Education by two authors, David Milne and Stephen Schaeffersman. Uh, and I've got it here, and it's got a great title. <laughs> it's Dinosaur Tracks, Erosion Marks, and Midnight Chisel Work, But No Human Footprints in the Cretaceous Limestone of the Paluxy Riverbed, Texas. So this article is, is basically published. And what they do is they review all of the published literature, all of the creationist literature, all of the photographs that are available, and they basically come to pretty much the same conclusions that Bernie Neufeld had come to a decade earlier. Yeah. Um, they, they just basically confirm everything that Neufeld had, had written. Um, they say that many of the tracks which had been removed from the river um, – are of uncertain provenance. In other words, we, we don't really know where they came from. You know, we don't have a good location information or which particular stratigraphic level these slabs came from. Um, some of them showed anatomically unrealistic features uh, that suggested these are not real footprints. Yes. Um, they came to the conclusion that many of these were probably carvings. They, they, they were almost certainly fakes. The tracks that were still in situ in the riverbed, um, they had a look at those. And they decided that many of them were just too vague and indistinct, really, to make much, much of anything of them. Um, when they examined the four best sites, the, the sites that were claimed to have the best evidence of, of human tracks, um, they, like Neufeld, concluded that these elongate tracks were a combination of random erosional markings and tracks that were left by dinosaurs where you know the 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 toes had been backfilled leaving this sort of vaguely human-like sort of impression um, in in the sediment they even suggested there was some evidence that some of the tracks had been deliberately tampered with that they'd been um there was a bit of chisel work going on to sort of alter them, to make them look a bit more human-like than, than they otherwise would. So that was, that was 83. And there was a follow-up article in the same journal, 1987. Um, this is uh, an article by Ronnie Hastings, another anti-creationist. Uh, this one is called New Observations on Paluxy Tracks Confirm Their Dinosaurian Origin. And um, Hastings, uh, he basically visited the area with another researcher, Glenn Cuban. Um, Glenn Cuban, um, I don't, I don't know that much about the kind of backstory of Glenn Cuban, but I understand he was at least early on, he was broadly sympathetic yeah. to creationism. Uh, but anyway, he and 
um, Ronnie Hastings sort of visit Paluxy. They they go there in eighty four and eighty five. They particularly make a study of uh, the Taylor site where there was a particular trail of tracks that were claimed to be man tracks. And they made some really important observations. Um, they, they again were able to show that many of these tracks had evidence of splayed claw marks um, at the end that, that had been infilled by the soft mud. They also noticed that there were sometimes what they called colour distinctions where the claws would have been. So sometimes the, the kind of the marks of the claws could be made out by this kind of reddish brownish staining that highlighted you know the three sort of toe marks of the of the dinosaur print and when these tracks were then exposed to the air sometimes that color distinction would become even more vivid uh be probably because of some oxidation reaction yes, you know so you, you're getting some yeah oxidation is kind of picking out some subtle sort of chemical difference in the the material that's infilling the toe marks and the surrounding limestone. So they make some really important observations, and they eventually they um, they invite John Morris um, from ICR, who'd who'd written the book, you know, tracking those incredible dinosaurs. They invite him, and they also invite Paul Taylor of Films for Christ, who's the son of Stanley Taylor, who'd commissioned the movie, to come and meet with them. Uh, at Glen Rose and have a look at the evidence together and discuss, you know, these new observations. And so that that's what they do. I think they meet on more than one occasion, if I remember. And as a result of these discussions, uh, ICR um, begins to kind of back away from the claims about the Paluxy Mantrax. So in 1986, this is this is a you know a year or so later, um, ICR publishes uh, one of their impact articles. Uh, this one, the Paluxy River Mystery, uh, written by John Morris. And in this uh, little impact article, John Morris says this. He says it is now improper for creationists to continue to use the Paluxy data as evidence against evolution. And he concedes that none of the four trails at the Taylor site can today be regarded as unquestionably of human origin. So, in effect, he's publishing a kind of yeah, it's a retraction, retraction yeah. of yeah, m m much of the evidence. And he took the book out of circulation, didn't he? Didn't they do that? Well, at first, I think what happened was the book um, was still in circulation, but they put the in they put the impact article in as a as an insert. Uh, okay. You know, and well, then they sold I think through the last of, of the stock, I imagine. So I prob probably <laughs> that's what happened. They probably sold through the last of the stock, and then it kind of went out yeah, of print. Okay. They they had a they had a Paluxy display, I understand, in the museum, which they kind of screened off uh, from the public. And Films for Christ uh, withdrew the the movie right. uh, from circulation at, at that time. And you've got to think, you know, that that was uh, that was a tough decision for those guys to make. Yeah. You know, they were he they were heavily invested in in much of this evidence. They'd been, you know, this had been something that they'd invested a lot of time and effort in for, you know, a couple of decades. And you know, it it, it took some courage, I think, to to kind of say, yeah, we yeah, put put their hands up and say we got this one wrong, yeah. and. Um, you know, and and admit that they they'd basically made a mistake. Yeah, they got a lot. So they, I don't think we should be too. Yeah, they get a lot of flack. I don't think we right? should be too hard on. Yeah, yeah. I, they did get a lot of flack, and they they get a lot of pushback because obviously there are, there are always people who want them to go further. Yeah, um, that's right. You know, and th and think that they're you know they're being a bit mealy mouthed maybe about some of their retraction. But you know, I I think um, you know credit where credit's due. They they admitted they made a mistake. Yeah. Um, and so that kind of then, you know, brings us to the present day. So today, I I think it's fair to say that all of the big creation organizations, whether it's ICR, AIG, CMI, um, they have basically completely dropped the Paluxy yeah. man trap Correct. evidence. Correct. 
Uh, in fact, they list it in the list of arguments that creationists shouldn't use. You may remember a few episodes back, we did That's right. an episode, you know, arguments creationists should avoid, and they list the Paluxy argument as, as one of those. But <laughs> you and I know that that hasn't always filtered out into the wider community. No. So you will still find this argument surfacing on the internet yep. and on social media. And there are still some creationists who, I guess we might say, are kind of on the fringe outside of the big the creation organizations. Kind of just doing their own thing. Who continue to promote. Yeah. Yeah, and they, they continue to promote the authenticity of the tracks. Um, yeah. Yeah, so that kind of brings us, <laughs> and I re- brings us up to yeah, I remember, I remember growing up with the Genesis Flood in our house and reading it and seeing those. I mean, those pictures were striking. The picture of those giant, yeah. those giant um, footprints with the guy and his bare foot stuck on the top of it to show you how big they were. Yeah. And to think about, oh, the Bible says in the in those days there were giants in the earth and this is it. These are the giants. And and then, you know, you as you do, you grow up and you learn things. And 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 I remember in grad school, the first time I came across Glenn Cuban's website. Because so Glenn Cuban not only did all this work um, with Paluxy firsthand, but he also went on to create this massive website about the Paluxy track history. And he's pretty antagonistic towards that and towards creationists promoting these, these, these claims. And I remember looking at his website and reading through his research. And that's the first time I had seen anti Paluxy stuff and, and discussed, Discovering, I remember very distinctly this beautiful map of the track site, and it had all the di- there's just a bunch of dinosaur tracks everywhere, and then he had the this trackway of human prints highlighted, and it it went literally on one end, it was all little tiny human prints, and at the other end of the trackway, you could clearly see the big toes of the, of the three toed theropod dinosaur and it and and i thought well that that really kind of clinches it this isn't this isn't what i thought it was um and and then of course and in fact that uh, i was going to say that variability of the of the prints along an individual trackway is actually one of the clues that might help us to understand what is actually going on in in how these tracks were made which we'll we'll come to yeah we'll get to that here in a second yeah and yeah, so so that that struck me so forcefully as I'm reading through this, just trying to trying to sort out the the the, the anti creationist side from well, what is the actual data? Yeah, that was striking. And then nowadays, you know, people yeah. send me still send me regularly. I got one just last fall where they'll send me this picture of a track, and they will say, "What do you think of this?" And it's so awkward. I feel so bad because I can tell now as an adult and as a mature scientist who has spent a lot of time studying, um, you know, anatomy and foot anatomy and so forth. And I can tell looking at this thing, somebody carved it. (laughs) I can, I can just see it. This is not anatomically correct. I, I don't care. It's not the size so much, the 18 inch long prints. It's it's the fact that it looks like it was drawn by a seven year old <laughs> and then carved <laughs> into the rock. And I always feel bad because, you know, they're clearly very excited about it. But I just write back. This is obviously a carving. It, it, it is nothing yeah. about this anatomy that tell, that suggests that this is a real this is a real foot that made this thing so yeah sorry i have to rain on everybody's parade yeah it's but it is really (laughs) really really obvious once you once you know more about dinosaur feet and you know more about human feet the some of those dino tracks carved into those rocks look like godzilla (laughs) they look like totally fictional feet so 
Yeah, and it, it's not that we kind of want to take any kind of, any sort of delight or no. pleasure in bursting the bubble, but that as Christians we believe that the truth matters, right? It does. <laughs> the yeah. truth is important, <clears throat> and you know we have to just have that uppermost in our mind that you know the the truth matters. We we don't need human footprints in the Paluxy River to support no, creationism at the end of the day. I don't. Um, uh, you know, and if we if we kind of hitch our wagon to something that is so clearly, after all these years, spurious, um, we're we're not actually doing our cause any favors. So I think there are some lessons that you know we should we should take away from from all of this, and maybe we could think about that. I I, I think one of the lessons is always to be very wary of what I like to call magic bullet type yeah, yeah. arguments. Mm -hmm. And I think we've we've kind of touched on this probably before. There is clearly an appeal to finding human tracks alongside dinosaur tracks because as you said Huge earlier, discovery. in one fell swoop, yep. you know, you there goes evolution. Kind of demolished. Yep. There goes the evolutionary yep. model. I, I'm not quite so sure actually <laughs> about that. I <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Um, but when we're thinking about, you know, reconstructing the, 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 the history of the Earth, things are rarely that straightforward. Yeah. Um, where you just find this one big knockdown argument that kind of solves all your, all your problems. That, that isn't how things work. There are no shortcuts to doing the hard work of trying to understand carefully the the geological and paleontological data um you know we have to we have to be thinking about how we understand the broad sweep of data not getting so focused on these anomalies you know that we think are going to just bypass all the hard work for us and so I think there's some real dangers there. This sort of reliance on magic bullets. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that, that's the first thing. The second thing uh, that I think we can take away from the Paluxy story is the importance of careful, critical research and review. Uh, I was very struck by something that Bernie Neufeld said um, in his article. Let me just quote this, because I, I was very struck by this. I think, I think it's his last sort of comment in the conclusion. He says, in any kind of investigation, but especially when investigating the past where data is more equivocal, caution and thoroughness should characterise the work done and conclusions should not be drawn prematurely. Yeah. Well, amen to that. So, um, you know, it... <laughs> It's interesting to me that the earliest criticisms of the Paluxy argument came from other creationists, yeah. but that they were ignored. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, how history might have been different had people paid more attention <laughs> to yeah. you know, so, some of these early criticisms. And it's, it, um, it's interesting that you mentioned that because when, when I think about sensational ideas sometimes i find things that i think uh, this this is really surprising right in my own research i may find something really surprising and unexpected um and my immediate reaction <laughs> as, a, as a trained scientist my immediate reaction is this must be wrong <laughs> <laughs> And I'm yeah. and I'm thinking immediately of all right. Well, what's what's all the other possible explanations? Let's yeah. test and make sure that it's not this and it's not that and it's not the other thing. And I'm running through yeah. every scenario I can to come up with all the different possible things that I have to rule out before I accept this extraordinary thing, even if I want to accept it. I just think that it's, yeah. it can't be yeah, that easy. Right. It can't be that easy. No. Um, and I think that's something that, you know, I think, I don't know, it's, it's a, it's a habit that needs to be cultivated a lot in people that, that you need to be skeptical of things and you need to be most yeah. skeptical of the things that you're most excited about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
hindsight's a wonderful thing. Oh, brother, yeah. But the, but yeah, the, the the lesson from Paluxy is that it is very easy to ignore data that we just find inconvenient. Yeah. And we need to, we need, like you say, to discipline ourselves um, not to do that. <laughs> um, and also, I think sometimes criticism from friends, and yeah. you know the like i say it was it was creationists publishing a lot of the critical stuff early on criticism from friends can be particularly hard to take because they're meant to be on our You're side supposed to be on my <laughs> side yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what are you doing you know taking away my favorite um piece of evidence but we we need good criticism and and review and it might be better that it com- comes from our own side than it you know, we wait for the anti-creationists to kind of tear us to bits. Always, about it, so. <laughs> always, 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 because they are predators and they don't care. And at yeah. least I care about other creationists. It may not seem that way sometimes. Yeah. Um, but I do care deeply about the health of the creationist community. And, and, and if that means we have to root out some silly ideas, well, yeah, yeah, we should do that. We should be willing to to do that. Yeah, we should be our own worst, worst critics. critics. Absolutely, we, we should. Yeah, we should. Yeah. And I think you know one final lesson, and this kind of brings me back to that article in paleontology that I began with. Yeah, is that scientific ideas continue to change, and the Paluxy story is not over yet. Nope. Um, you see, it was always a bit of a mystery as to why the dinosaur tracks at Paluxy were that strange elongate shape that you could mistake for a human track. Um, And as you say, you could even look along a single trackway and find that the tracks transitioned to something that was much more a traditional retoed dinosaur track. Right. So what on earth was going on? Right. And... uh, to understand this, you have to understand that dinosaurs, the dinosaurs that made these tracks, were usually toe walkers. Mm-hmm. So they would walk on their toes. Right. So the rest of the foot was actually raised off the ground. And so they would leave a three-toed track that did not have that kind of long, if you like, heel impression that you find in many of those Paluxy tracks. And back in the 1980s, uh, Glenn Cuban, you know, interested as he was, you know, in what was going on at Paluxy, he proposed an explanation. He proposed that what was happening was these dinosaurs were, instead of walking on their toes, they were actually walking in a kind of weird, flat-footed fashion. So they were crouching low to the ground. Yeah. And they were putting the whole of the foot down on the ground, and it was leaving this long metatarsal print. It's a this sort of long elongate track, right? It's a weird model because why would they? It is do a that? very weird model. And why wouldn't they yeah, leave a tail mark very... if they're if they're sliding down that much to put the back of their foot yeah. down? That seems it's really very odd. weird. It look it seems very unnatural. Yeah. Um, and. What this paper is about in paleontology is basically challenging Glenn Cuban's explanations. Ooh. They're basically saying they they think that's wrong. So they have uh, they've come up with a different explanation because they say this weird sort of crouching posture doesn't explain actually the the characteristics of the tracks that we see at Paluxy. So what you'd expect if a dinosaur was kind of in this strange posture was you would expect it to be making very short steps but with a very wide gauge but that's not what you see yeah um you actually see uh, a narrow gauge and quite large stride as if the dinosaur was moving pretty normally yeah uh so that doesn't fit and it doesn't really explain why the prints are so poorly preserved. Why, why do they lack anatomical detail? Why are the toes usually filled in? Um, yeah, so there are some things about 
the tracks at Paluxy that don't don't just kind of fit with Glenn Cuban's explanation. So they're proposing that in fact these tracks were produced by dinosaurs walking in a normal fashion, but in very very soft mud, where the foot is sometimes very deeply penetrating the mud. So the foot is kind of going in at a fairly vertical, a steep angle, going into the mud. But because it's going a long way down, the whole foot is leaving an impression, this elongate impression in the mud. And as the, as the foot presses down on the mud to give it traction, you know, to give it forward thrust, it actually even elongates the track. It becomes even longer than, than it might otherwise be. The metatarsal part of the foot, you know, is, is kind of pushing backwards. And then as it comes up back out of the, as it withdraws from the sediment, the sediment is kind of infilling the, the toes. And what you end up with is just a very vague, elongate oval impression. In, in the mud, and they have some illustrations, they have some diagrams kind of showing how they how they think this works. And they think that this helps to explain the features of the dinosaur tracks at Paluxy, the fact that the stride length is quite long, that the gauge is narrow, that there doesn't seem to be any change in stride or speed. Um, uh, it explains the variability of the tracks because sometimes the dinosaurs are walking on a firmer sediment surface than at other times. Maybe parts of the sediment are very soupy and, and, and deep and other, other parts are firmer. So it explains how the tracks can vary along a particular trackway. It explains the poor preservation of, uh, of the dinosaur tracks and why you generally the toes are very indistinct or absent. So they're arguing that you know, this is a this is a new explanation for what are actually very peculiar um, yeah. dinosaur tracks, um, sort of atypical dinosaur tracks. Seems like seems like the thing to do would be to take one of the elongate tracks and section it long ways, because you should see the foot going down into the mud. It should leave a it should leave a trace there, right? Right, you 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 may be able to think of ways that you know this model could be tested. Yeah, uh, and you know more more work could be done. And I'm sure this isn't the final word. You know, other yeah, people no, will, yeah. um, you know, will will be doing more research. Paluxy isn't the only place where these elongate tracks are found. There are some other places around the world where elongate tracks are found. So uh, yeah, so it'll be very interesting. And not all elongate tracks necessarily form the same way. Um, some elongate tracks, and and the authors acknowledge this, form in other in in other ways. Some of them are sliding tracks, you know, where dinosaurs slipped in the mud yep. and left yep. along a long track. Yep. Um, but those are those don't have the same characteristic traits because usually, you know, dinosaur slips and you get one print that looks like that, or maybe a couple of prints, but not a it whole covers a whole trail. Yeah. It's, yeah. Um, so, so there are ways to sort of distinguish, you know, what, what the different modes of origin might be. So anyway, there, there we are. So that, so the story at Paluxy is not finished. It's, not it's still being yeah. written. Yeah, not done. <laughs> well, thank you, Paul. This has been a fascinating history lesson for all of you listening and ready to send us hate mail. Please don't. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> if you don't agree with us, cool. That's fine. Um, you're, you're, you're entitled to your opinions. That's just as we are entitled to ours. Um, that's okay. Um, but yeah, yeah, this has been a fascinating, a fascinating episode. And I do think the, the story on Paluxy is still out. I still wonder, Paul, how in the world do we preserve footprints at all, um, in the fossil record? They are such ephemeral little things. It seems like yeah. very special kind of circumstances are necessary to to make to make them stick around for so long and maybe that's a story for another day um i think we're out of time here so so let's remind everyone you can find out more about uh let's talk creation at our website course slash podcast 
You can send us an email if you'd like to, podcast at corsi.org. Let us know what you think about the podcast. Let us know about what you'd like to hear on future podcasts. Let us know what your questions are. Maybe we'll address those in a future episode. Um, again, I would remind you, uh, if you're watching us on YouTube, uh, click that like button, click that subscribe button, click that bell button if you want to be notified uh, when we release new content. If you're listening to us on another platform, we would very much appreciate a positive review of our work. If you've enjoyed what we do, and if you like uh, the style and the and the depth in which we approach these issues, like today's episode was pretty in depth. Um, uh, we are sponsored by Core Academy of Science um, that in the United States. If you're in the United States and you'd like to support us financially, you can find out more at coresci.org/slash connect that's we'll give you links to important content that we want you to check out corsi.org slash donate is where you can find out information about how you can financially support our work and in the uk paul tell us about biblical creation trust yes uh, if you go to our webpage biblicalcreationtrust.org uh, there's a donate button on the home page and that takes you to a giving page where you can select various options um, if you're in the uk you can send us a check or you can make a direct bank transfer uh, or uh, you can you can give via stewardship if you're in the in the usa or if you're overseas there's a paypal option uh, you'll find it all there on the giving page and uh, you'll also find us on social media, so check us out on Facebook. Definitely, yes. And Let's Talk Creation is also on all your social media platforms, Facebook, uh, Instagram, and so forth. And you can look us up there. Find that at coresci.org slash podcast. We'll have links to all of our social media. And that's another great way to get in touch with us if you want to leave some comments or post some questions or something like that. If we might, we might respond, we might save it for a future episode. <laughs> Who knows? So I think that wraps it up for this time. Uh, thanks, Paul, for sharing all that great stuff with us. And we will see you next episode. See you next time. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Let's Talk Creation. If you have questions, send them to podcast at corsi.org. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at C-O-R-E-S-C-I dot org. And be sure to let your friends know about Let's Talk Creation. And check us out on social media. Thank you.